So we're in Revelation 16 today. We've only got 22 chapters, so we're getting closer and closer to the end of this great book. We'll be done in just a few months. But today we will look at the first five bowls of the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out upon the earth. We're going to look at the first five. We'll be covering the first 11 verses of chapter 16 of Revelation. So let's read that together. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And they heard, and I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, we have read of the opening of the seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, followed by seven visions, and now the pouring out of seven bowls. And uh, it is important that we connect these seven bowls with what's gone before, the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. These are clearly connected in the book of Revelation, and um, they're not just, you know, happen to be in a series of things that are unrelated to each other. In fact, the seven bowls are so similar to the seven trumpets. They are both directed against the earth, and then the sea, then the rivers and springs, then the sun, and then the realm of the wicked with darkness. So the two have such clear pattern that they're clearly designed to be taken with each other in mind. They are also both clearly reflective of the ten plagues in Egypt. This is part of the reason 
why we have concluded, as many others have, that these sevens are to be taken as cyclical. That is, addressing the same period over and over again, much like the four Gospels. Each start and go through the story, then it starts over. And it goes through the same story, starting over and going through the same story, even though they have different details and different points of view and give you different insights, and God did this on purpose. So what is this time period that is covered in these, uh, these sevens? Well, we have taken the seven seals and the seven trumpets to depict, to depict afflictions experienced upon the earth during this present age between the first and the final comings of Christ. So they're picturing all the storms, all the hurricanes, all the wars, the famines, the droughts, the floods, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the heat spells, the accidents, the polarizations, the fires, the drug overdoses, the pandemics, the depressions, the coups, the mental health issues, the diseases, the genetic mutations, and thousands of things that can go wrong with the human body, and other assorted troubles. This is what is being depicted in these judgments being poured out upon the earth. And the seven bowls seem to fit this very well as well. Last week we covered the introduction to the seven bowls in Revelation 15. So let me just give some summarizing things that we saw last week in chapter 15 as we began to look at the seven bowls. The seven bowls seem to spring from the last of the seven visions, which was sort of a final day recapitulation of the Red Sea celebration after the Exodus where the people of God are singing and celebrating because God has just delivered them through the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies. Whereas the other sets of seven all build toward the grand finale at the end of history. The the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bulls do not. And And the reason is because their big culmination occurs at the beginning in the seventh vision. And then the seven seven, uh, bowls are like a flashback after that great final scene that we read in chapter 15. The seven bowls seem to reflect the ten plagues, as I mentioned earlier, that God poured out upon Egypt in the days of Moses. Six of the seven bowls are directly linked to one of the ten plagues. And the only one that isn't is the exact opposite of one, another one of the ten plagues. It's the, the total darkness and the scorching sun. Okay, so I know that uh, for many of you, this passage is quite unfamiliar. So, um, even though we've read it once, I'd like to just go back over it now as five different little mini-scenes of this drama that's before us. 
the first scene, John hears a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That's verse 1. Then the second scene is that the first angel takes the bowl and he pours it out on the earth and it causes harmful and painful sores upon those who bore the mark of the beast. We've already seen the mark of the beast. The people who identify themselves with the beast and with the wicked world system. And, uh, and so that's the second vision. Those people who have the mark of the beast get the painful sores. That is the, the first bowl. The third scene is more complicated. First, the second angel pours out his bowl into the sea, which becomes like the blood of a corpse. And all living things in the sea die. And then the third angel pours out his bowl. This is still part of the third scene. He pours out his bowl, not on the sea, but on the rivers and the, and the springs. And they turn into blood too. And then John hears the angel in charge of the waters, which is a subject that is fascinating, just the idea that there's an angel in charge of the waters of the earth. Just just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. So they declare that God is just for bringing these judgments upon the very seas that they're in charge of. And why has God brought these judgments upon these people? Well, it's because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. So, God has given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. So the punishment fits the crime. They have consumed the blood of the martyrs in a sense, and now they're being given blood to drink as a judgment. And then finally, this is still the third scene. Finally, John hears the altar. Presumably, that is the saints under the altar that we've seen before. For instance, in 6.9. Saying, yes, Lord, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Okay, so that's the first three scenes. There's two more. And the fourth, and these are brief too. The fourth scene, the fourth angel pours his bowl out on the sun such that the sun scorches people with fire and fierce heat and the people curse the name of God who had the power over these plagues instead of repenting and giving him glory. And then that, and that's verse 8 and 9. Then the final scene, the fifth scene, the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And the beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness. This results in people gnawing their tongues in anguish and cursing the God of heaven for their pain and sores, again, instead of repenting of their deeds. Okay, so those are, that. hopefully now you're beginning to get a little bit of a picture of this passage that we have before us. Now I want to point out four sort of noteworthy things in this passage that we shouldn't miss. The first one is how the marks of the beast have turned into sores. 
So it says that the, uh, in verse 2 that harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. So, you know, when these people, and of course this isn't talking about literal marks, I don't believe, but people who had, uh, who identified with the beast, who identified with the, the anti-Christian world system. And uh, <clears throat> so what looked at first to be innocent and minor and superficial now is begins to turn into something that is toxic and penetrating and disgusting. These marks turning into sore, painful sores. The second thing I want to point out is that this is, even though in the mind of the contemporary man they could read this and feel like God is being cruel, uh, there's nothing but justice going on here. Um, it's safe to think that the ones being punished don't agree. They despise their penalty. It tells us in verse 9, they cursed God who had the power over these plagues. In verse 10, they gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores. But, we're also told that they were getting just what they deserved. Verse 6, it is what they deserve. And verse 7, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The third thing I'd like to point out is how is what the punishment is for. Now it's clear that the sins of these people are many and that ultimately all their sins are involved in the, the explanation of why they're being judged. But the only specific sin that's mentioned here is their persecution of the saints. We see it in verse 6. Why are they being judged? They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and so you have given them blood to drink. So that is a very central feature of all of this, is the, the persecution of God's children by the wicked. Okay, and then the fourth thing I want to point out is how the fifth bowl is poured out not upon the earth, not upon the sea, not upon the sun, but upon the throne of the beast. Now, if you remember when we talked about the beast in earlier chapters, we interpreted the beast as the Antichrist, both in the final individual sense of one person who will be the Antichrist, but also in the spirit of Antichrist, which is another way that the word Antichrist is used in the New Testament um, that's a more general sense, representing the world's system that opposes Christ. So when the fifth bowl is poured out upon the throne of the beast, and it's plunged into darkness and it causes people to gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse God, it seems that this refers to events on earth ordained by God to show the ungodly the futility 
of this world and of their idolatry. And this causes them, not necessarily physically, but it causes them in their hearts to gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse God in heaven because they have nothing to live for. And their lives are so dark and so empty. You see, God allows those who follow the beast to have times of anguish and horror when he sort of forces them to face their spiritual darkness and their separation from him as the source of life and the eternal darkness which awaits them where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same kind of image we're given here in uh, uh, Revelation 16, which is given by Jesus numerous times, for instance, in the book of Matthew. Okay, so those are four things that we don't want to miss that are worthy of note. Now, the rest, we're just going to look at sort of a, a message of this to us. Um, standing over all of this havoc being wreaked upon the earth is God who brings all these plagues to pass upon the earth. This was clear with the seals and with the trumpets, but it's stated even more clearly and repeatedly here in this passage. In 16.1, the seven bowls are called the seven bowls of the wrath of God that are being poured out upon the earth. This is not just, you know, tragedies and, and things happening for no reason or accidents. This is God's wrath being poured, about, poured upon the earth. Verse 5 says, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, for you brought these judgments. And then verse 9 and 10, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They understood where this comes from. And down deep, all people understand where their traumas and their torments come from. And that's why there's so many people that you know they may express their anger towards others, but behind it all, they are angry towards God. Now this has a number of implications. First of all, we should not scoff at the concept that the lifestyle of human beings is the reason things on this planet are falling apart. Just because that is the refrain of many liberals today doesn't mean that it's completely wrong. What they often do get wrong is that the, that the human sin that's behind it all is not anything so narrow as man's exploitation of the planet. It is a much larger sin of man's rebellion towards God and his idolatry where he turns his worship to other things besides God. God can send hurricanes, 
forest fires because of human idolatry and because of the persecution of the righteous. It doesn't have to be connected to an activity which causes the hurricane or whatever. The second thing is that we should also not put our confidence in the planet's ability to continually bounce back from mistreatment or disruption. When God sets out, when God sets out to disrupt the planet, he can do so without having to overcome some resilience which the planet supposedly naturally possesses. So it's all in his hands whether the planet can bounce back or not. Man, and the third thing is this. Man hates the troubles of life, of course. But he hates even more the idea that it is God who sends these troubles because of sin. People say, if there really was a good God in charge, he would make this world a good place where good things happen. In other words, if God is really good, he can't possibly be angry with me. What's really going on is that people are angry with God for being angry with them and for allowing their lives to be therefore troubled and the world to be a place of struggle and pain. And of course this anger is at the heart of human sin and human rebellion. They want to be, we by nature, want to be God's judge instead of God being our judge. Every new bowl that is poured out upon the earth elicits a new cry of outrage. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Even when God displays his glory and his power, mankind, instead of repenting, protests in hatred and anger. The wrath of God is poured out with painful sores and environmental catastrophes to the point that they experience inner despair. But it only fuels their hatred for God and His people. They curse God all the more and refuse to repent. And beloved, this picture that we're given here of the essence of man's heart ought to humble us and make us grateful if indeed the Lord has made us able and willing to repent. Because this is a gift. The description here is the way we would be if it wasn't for the grace of God. And what a blessing that this is not the way. We are, though there's still 
remnants of it alive in our hearts, to be sure. But the fact that God is pouring out His wrath on earth also raises some questions. Three questions in particular I'd like to address. First of all, what's, what's the point of the wicked being judged in the, when they're going to be judged in the end anyway? Well, we said last week that this whole story is very... The scriptures draw our attention to the parallel of the exodus, the, the plagues on Egypt, the exodus through the Red Sea, and the celebration at the end. So, why did God bring the plagues upon Egypt? I mean, he could have just destroyed them in the, in the beginning and not gone through these ten plagues. Why did God do that? Maybe that will help us understand why he's bringing plagues now upon the earth. Well, we're given some answers to this question in Romans chapter 9. The first answer is in verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he's saying, this is why, Pharaoh, that I raised you up and put you in this position. I wanted to show my power in your case and make my name proclaimed in all the earth. Gives us some answer, but it doesn't really fill in a number of gaps. It goes on in verse 22 and 23. Still talking about Pharaoh and the Exodus. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for, mercy, for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, in the context, it's clear that when he's talking about uh, these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he's talking about Pharaoh and the Egyptians as an analogy of all those who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So when he says that he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he's talking about bearing with much patience Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In other words, God bore with with much patience the defiance, the hardness, the resistance, the rebellion of the Egyptians who refused to let his people go. And why did he do that? He did it so that he could make his glory known to the vessels of his mercy. But I'll get to that in a minute. But what this teaches us is that the plagues on Egypt weren't just like acts of anger towards the Egyptians. They were actually acts of divine restraint. They were acts of divine restraint. Instead of pouring out all of his wrath upon the Egyptians, he gave them mere tastes of it, a foreshadowing of what was to come. 
And why did he do this? Well, now we get to the next part. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God is showing his power over evil. He is making known his glorious grace to his objects of mercy. This is why mankind is experiencing mere trials instead of ultimate judgment. So when we look at the earth and we see horrible things happening, we shouldn't ask, how can this be happening? How could God let this happen? We should see that this is God's patience. Yes, he's bringing judgments, but they're small judgments and shallow judgments compared to what's coming. And these are designed to be foreshadowing the great judgment that will come at the end. This is very consistent with the way Jesus himself talked about some local disasters which occurred in his day and in his locality. In Luke chapter 13, we read this. Some told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So uh, Pilate, in an act of tyranny, um, some Galilean Jews had come to offer sacrifices and he was displeased with them for some reason. And he actually killed them and took their blood and mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices, which was a scandal to all the Jews, of course. And then he continued, and he answered them. This was Jesus' response to this brutal, barbaric act on behalf of their leader. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So you see, he's treating this terrible act of injustice as something that's a, a, a divine shot across the bow for all that we ask ourselves, okay, so maybe I'm going to be the next one. Maybe I should wake up and repent of my sin. And then he went on to tell another story. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here a building collapses. And 18 people are killed. A great tragedy. But Jesus interprets this as a sign of God's anger and judgment coming upon mankind and urging everyone to repent so that they are not the victims of his judgment when it comes. So, again, very consistent with what we've seen. The troubles of the earth are tastes of the coming judgment given as warnings and that we might get ready and be repentant and flee from our sins and flee unto Christ so that when he comes he comes in mercy towards us the 
the second question that this raises is how is this consistent with Father, forgive them? How is this consistent with do not hold this sin against them? You know, we have two very different portrayals in the New Testament of the disposition of the Lord towards sinners. On the one hand, He's very kind and patient and gracious, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to salvation, as it says in 2 Peter 3.9. On the other hand, and this is the primary disposition that we see reflected in the book of Revelation, He is wrathful and severe. Obviously, since both of these are found in the Bible, they're both correct. Though in our minds, there seems to be some tension between the two. But of course, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What we know is this. That it's very tempting for us to gravitate toward one of these and away from the other based on our personality, based on our preference, based on the time in which we live. Or sometimes we gravitate toward the one, one of them for ourselves and the other for others. You know, we're like, we view God's grace towards me, but we think about God's anger towards everybody else. Or... We view, think of God's anger toward me and feel like he's gracious towards everybody else. Both of these temptations must be resisted. Also, we know that the consistent call in the New Testament is for God's people to have an attitude of grace and kindness, not only toward each other, but toward non-believers. Even when the wrath of God toward the wicked is acknowledged in the New Testament, it's not something that we, as God's children, are supposed to exercise. Romans 12.19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not that we're supposed to forget about or ignore the wrath of God toward the wicked. It's just that we're supposed to leave that to God. So should we tell people who are victims of catastrophes and disasters that God is punishing them for their sin? No. Because we don't know that. Some are God's elect but not yet converted. And we might be his instruments to love them to Christ. Some are saints who need our love and help. And even those who are experiencing the judgment of God and will never be saved, even if we could know who those were, and we can't, our job is still to love our neighbor. As Romans 12 says in the next verse, verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so you see that even though 
there's complexity and, and uh, things that maybe are mysteries to us in terms of God's disposition. We must accept what he tells us and follow the way of, of uh, grace in the way that we treat others and think of others. The third question that this raises is, are God, and the final one, are God's children shielded from these bowls of God's wrath? And the answer to that is yes and no. Believers are not shielded from afflictions, but they are shielded from the evil of afflictions. We should not view our tribulations as collateral damage experienced because we happen to get splashed when the bowls are poured out upon the earth because we happen to be standing near the target. God has perfect aim. His wrath doesn't produce collateral damage. When the bowls of his wrath are poured out, they cause no unintended destruction. Of course, believers do experience hardships and afflictions and disappointments and failures and losses, just like people in the world. But for believers, these things are just the medicine that we need. They are helpful and never harmful. God allows only the suffering he knows that we need in just the right amount and duration, not an ounce or a second more. Think about the contrast between the experience of the wicked that we see in the language of just the passage that we're reading this morning. The wrath of God, harmful and painful sores, drinking water like blood, scorched with fire and fierce heat, plunged into darkness, people gnawing their tongues in anguish, cursing God in their pain and sores. The, the language of this and many other places in the New Testament tell us about the, um, the experience of the wicked in this world. But contrast that with what the New Testament tells us about the tribulations that come into the lives of believers. Count it all joy when you face various trials. These light and momentary trials are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Think about this. In the dark alley next to a hospital, a gang, a gang member plunges a knife into the belly of his enemy. While just a few feet away, a skilled surgeon inserts his knife into the belly of a patient to perform an emergency appendectomy. 
very similar events. But one is destructive and one is constructive. And my beloved friends, only God is powerful enough and wise enough and clever enough to send a hurricane or a fire or a war or a pandemic which delivers just the right amount of punishment to the wicked. Just the right amount of pressure to the unconverted elect to nudge them toward Christ. And just the right amount of discipline upon his beloved saints to teach them not to get too connected or dependent upon earthly things and to show them that Christ alone is their all in all. That is a pretty amazing God that we serve. Praise be to him that he has given us the privilege of being his beloved children. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is that we are the recipients of the grace, that we are those prepared beforehand for glory. We thank you, dear Lord, that even in the terrible things you bring upon the earth, that we can see your power, that we can see your righteousness, and that we can see your mercy in our own lives. Oh Lord, what a great love this is that you have for your children. And now, Lord, we celebrate this love as we come to the table of our Lord, where we remember what he did for us in his dying upon the cross, how he bore our penalty so that the wrath, the holy, just wrath that you pour upon the earth is something that we do not receive. Something that has been avoided because of Christ. And dear Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in this world with the gratitude of those who have been spared from such a terrible judgment. Please meet us here at this table. We pray in Jesus' name.